Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is me undies. I love them so much. And Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some me undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of me undies lounge pants and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of Me Undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 18, Dobby's Reward. For a moment, there was silence as Harry, Ron, Ginny, and Lockhart stood in the doorway, covered in muck and slime, and in Harry's case, blood. Then there was a scream. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Matt, we have one quick announcement before our story today, which is just that we want to remind everyone in our local group. So we have a local group page on our website. And if you have stopped meeting as a local group or you have started meeting as a local group, please go to our website, harrypottersacredtext.com and click on get involved in local groups and just update us on what you're up to so that we can make sure we have the most accurate information on our website. Vanessa, we're on the last chapter of the Chamber of Secrets, which means we're talking about love and you're going to tell us a story about love. Yeah. So 
I had the kids for a week by myself a couple of years ago, and it was it was just really special to spend, you know, a little over a week, the three of us. The girls were on summer break. I took a week off. We were just hanging out, going swimming every day, watching movies. It was great. Neither of their parents are big movie watchers, and so I've taken it upon myself to show them just like the necessary classics, right? The Sound of Musics, the Mamma Mias, the Sand Lots, right? Like this is my responsibility in their lives. And I realized that they had not seen the movie Titanic, and I looked at Amy, who was eight at the time, and I was like, eight might be a little young. And then I did some math and I was like, no, my younger brother, Jonathan, was eight and he loved it. And then I was like, this is a risky movie to show the kids. So I texted Peter, who was in Germany, and I was like, hey, is it okay if I show the kids Titanic? Do you think they're too young? There are breasts in it, was what I said to him. (laughs) And he wrote back being like, no, I think that's fine. And I was like, great. Did my due diligence, super excited to do this tradition with the kids of showing them like important, iconic American movies. First hour of the movie goes great. The kids love it. And then we proceed to watch people drown for about 40 minutes before eight-year-old Amy has a full-blown panic attack and is like, At first, she was like, my stomach hurts. And then it became clear that she was just having an adverse reaction at eight years old to watching people die and drown for an hour. All of my intentions were loving. Like, I wanted to be there when they saw this classic movie. I wanted to share something that was a big part of my childhood. And I even thought through, right? I was like, oh, what happens in this movie that might be disturbing? Boobs. Boobs might be disturbing, right? And like checked with another adult. And yet I obviously like totally missed the mark, right? I forgot about how long the sinking is. And I ended up, right, like really troubling Amy. And the reason I tell this story on the theme of love is that I think that having loving intentions and feeling love just isn't enough to do good for the people who we love. I mean, another way to say this is, right, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. But I think we sometimes rely on love to guide us to do the right thing. And I just think sometimes love guides us to do the very, very wrong thing. So it has to be love plus, love plus justice, love plus reflection, love plus empathy. And we see that in this chapter, right? Like Arthur Weasley immediately starts shaming Jenny for, you know, forgetting this rule about don't trust something that thinks for itself if you can't see its brain. And there are all sorts of bad reactions that a hundred percent come from love. And so I really wanted to just talk about the moments that really loving intentions can actually hurt us. I mean, I think that's really interesting. I think the idea of love plus justice is right. But I also think that one of the important things about love is it has to be mutual and reciprocal, right? Like, I, I think that there's a danger in us thinking that if we add something to our love, like justice or empathy, then we can arrive at a place where our intentions will ever be sufficient. There are always going to be sure. unintended consequences of things we do. And that's why we also need people to love us back. 
to understand that our intentions are good, but we're humans and we make mistakes. And so you should be forgiving of us when we make those mistakes because our intentions were good, right? And so I think that the love plus is maybe love plus love. And that's not to say that there's not a place for justice. I think when we do make unintended errors or cause unintended harm, that doesn't mean we're not accountable, right? But that that accountability should be within a matrix of mutuality or something, right? I mean, if there is mutuality, often in cases of injustice, there isn't. But I think in the case you're describing between you and Amy, right? Amy loves you and she does. you weren't trying to hurt her, right? And so the two of you can reasonably talk about like what mistakes were made and like process it. But Amy also was probably inclined to know that you had good intentions and know that that it was a mistake and then just can move on and be forgiving and maintain a relationship with you. But my problem isn't about whether or not she was mad at me. My problem is that regardless of it Mm -hmm. is I traumatized her, right? And like, I quickly read an article online as to how to like not make something a long-term trauma, right? Like I did everything I could to make it as non-traumatizing as possible. I don't think, we don't know that you traumatized her, right? I mean. uh, But I upset her. You upset her, right. I think that's all true, Vanessa, but I also think that when you are in a loving relationship with someone else, you are going to unintentionally hurt them. Like, I don't think that there's any protective measure you you can place around your love. And so being in a loving relationship means accepting the risk of doing the wrong thing sometimes to the to the person you love and trusting that the strength of the love between you is what will allow you to heal from that. Right. Which is why I think you probably didn't traumatize Amy. I think that she knows that you love her. And I think that as you process it with her and you talk about it, she'll be fine because like the strength of that relationship is a thing that provides like the ground or the frame for when things go wrong. And I agree with everything you said. I just want to add that the impact of the hurt remains even if the relationship is repaired. Yeah, I think that's true too. Matt, I look forward to the continuation of this conversation. But first, we have to remind people what happens in the chapter. Are you willing? Um, yes. I, it, okay. it's a cr- I did not review. Usually I review, but okay, here we go. Come on, Ravenclaw. On your mark. Get set. Go. So they walk into, and the family's there, and they're screaming, and they're happy, and there's a there's a celebration, and then Harry describes everything that happened, but he doesn't want to say what happened. And Dumbledore's like, "How did Voldemort do this?" And Harry's like, "Yes, Voldemort did it." And then and then there's a feast, but then Harry says, "Maybe I'm supposed to be Slytherin," and Dumbledore's, "No, you're not. You're a Gryffindor." And then uh, and then Lucius comes, and Lucius is very angry, and Harry gives him the diary in a in a sock, and Lucius says, "I don't want this sock," and throws it at Dobby, and Dobby is free, and he says, "You shall not hurt Harry Potter." And then the chat ends yeah uh finish season two strong i that was that was one of my better 30 second recaps although i feel like i missed some important things which i'm sure you will cover which is why this is a team effort and not a competition unlike our theme conversation which is going to be very contentious i'm suspecting (laughs) (laughs) okay are you ready yeah i'm ready three two one go so everyone is really glad that Ginny survived and McGonagall is like, Harry and Ron, what happened? And he's, she's like, Dumbledore, you handle it. And Dumbledore handles it. And Ginny gets hot chocolate. And um, Lockhart is obliviated and they um, confront Lucius and Dobby gets freed and it's so exciting. And then they go to the feast and Hermione has been brought back to life. And so is Justin Finch Fletchley. And it's all very exciting. And Hagrid gets released from prison and they need a new defense against the dark arts teacher. And then they go back on the Hogwarts Express. Great. Great job. Thank you. Matt, I found this chapter really difficult to read. 
this time just because, you know, if we think of Ginny as a, right, like the victim of an older man who manipulates her and takes advantage of her innocence and then ends up kidnapping her, I I just don't feel like it's taken seriously in the chapter. Maybe my Molly, and I know that a lot of it is going to happen sort of like off the page, right? Ginny's about to go home for the summer, and I'm sure that she'll have a lot of cuddle time with Molly. But Arthur makes this comment about like, what did I tell you? And then Dumbledore's yeah. like, do you know what I think will help? Hot chocolate. And I'm like, I just think that this needs to be taken more seriously. And I know that there's some strategy involved in this of like not wanting to treat it like a a big trauma until you see how the, per- the, the victim is responding and wanting them to take the lead. But I still feel like this chapter is very dismissive of what Jenny just went through. And therefore, it it just, like, doesn't feel loving to me, even though I know everyone in this room does love Ginny. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. The relationship between Tom Riddle and Ginny is a predatory one. I mean, we saw that in the last chapter and just the way that Tom Riddle speaks about it. Like, it's Riddle had a target and he pursued it in this really awful and evil way. Everyone in this chapter is responding, I think, lovingly to Ginny. So the question is, is love enough, right? Like, so much of these books is built around the presumption or the assumption or the argument that love is enough. And the places where it's not enough seem to be hidden or written past or written quickly. And this is one of those moments, right, where Dumbledore says, how about some hot chocolate? That's what I think will fix this, right? And it seems to, because Ginny seems fine later. And we know that hot chocolate's often not enough, (laughs) clearly and obviously not enough. But it's also just not enough because we don't have more story. I think in the moment of crisis, you might offer some material pleasure as a first step towards other things, other conversations that will happen in days to come. But in that moment, you just try to make somebody comfortable. You know, you were a chaplain. I was a chaplain. I've been in a place where you get fetch somebody a hot tea just because that's yeah. the thing you can do in that moment. Not because you think it's the full and final fix, but because maybe something warm to drink will actually give some calm in the moment. And so we don't we don't have this background. And that's not that's not to fault Dumbledore, it's to kind of fault the thinness of the exploration here or of the question asking about whether love is enough and what form love has to take in this scene. I think uh, you're right, too, to bring up Arthur's comment, which is, he says, Ginny, and it says his expression is flabbergasted in the text. Ginny, Mr. Weasley says, haven't I taught you anything? What have I always told you? Never trust anything that can think for itself if you can't see where it keeps its brain. Why didn't you show the diary to me or to your mother, a suspicious object like that? It was clearly full of dark magic. I think you're right to to call this out as a really kind of troubling initial reaction to the return of his daughter, right? Because it's it's it seems to be placing the blame on on Ginny. So it's absolutely the wrong thing. It's absolutely the wrong thing. Um, but I but I also want to try to understand it within the context of what's going on. I mean, it's both identifiable and uncomfortable. Like, as a dad of kids, if something bad happened to one of them, I could see my instinct for control to try to keep bad things ever from happening to them. I could see that bearing out as didacticism in that moment, which is absolutely the wrong play. Like, I'm not trying to justify Arthur's actions here, but it's identifiable in a way because we want to believe that we can keep our kids from from the risks of the world by rightly instructing them. And the, the truth is that, we can't. And so if bad things happen, we 
too instinctively and fall back upon that. But I also think there's something more complicated going on here with Arthur's statement, or if not more complicated, I think there's a way to frame this instruction, which is that, you know, I think this line of Arthur's abstracted from the relationship between Arthur and Ginny can affect the way we read it, right? You can imagine like Tom Riddle's father, who was not a good person, right? Or Mr. Dursley, who is not kind to Harry. The same line coming from them, where there's not a prior relationship of love landing upon the the child victim as shaming, because the context of the relationship is one of shaming. And so a comment like this, in the context of all that shame, is felt as shame by the victim. Again, this is not to defend Arthur's I think, impulsive and ill-advised reaction here. But I believe that the context of the relationship is one of deep love. I think that even at 11 years old, Ginny probably recognizes that her dad is panicking a little bit. And because even though she doesn't love that she gets this from her dad and doesn't need to love that she gets it from her dad, my instinct is that she also knows her dad loves her. She knows her dad doesn't have a habit of shaming her. And so this is a comment they can move past more quickly than if you were a different kind of person, which is, again, relates to your story, which is that I think, even though this was a difficult moment between you and Amy, I think that Amy knows what you were doing with that movie. She knows that you were the one who introduces her to all these wonderful movie moments. And so it's something that you can move past together. Whereas if you were an indifferent caretaker who just let their kids watch, like, horror movies and didn't process them with them, it would land differently, right? And so, like, love is not just about the act. It's also about the framing and the condition and the relationship and the mutuality, which allows us to react to infelicitous or even harmful but good-intended actions of those we love, not just in a more forgiving way, but it it just makes us more resilient if there is already a loving frame around those actions. I think that it can make us more resilient, but I think it can also wound us more, right? So if if Lucius Malfoy came in and said, you idiot girl, this is your fault. How did you not know that this thing was possessed? I can imagine Jenny getting defiant and being like, screw you, man. Like, I, I didn't know. And I, right, like, and becoming defiant in her innocence rather than complicity. Whereas I worry that Arthur Weasley, because he loves her and has this loving relationship, that she could be like, oh my God, was this my fault, right? And internalize her perceived complicity in what happened to her and delay her healing. And I'm not saying that it's not worth the risk, right? Of course it is worth the risk. I just... I don't know. I I just want us all to take a breath in these situations and be like, oh, my God, I'm frustrated. Is that the thing that I should say right now? Right. Like and just not trust the fact that us loving each other is going to lead us to make good decisions. To be clear, I don't. I Arthur says the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. No, I know. But, I know. Yeah. I know that you. Think but I also that. think that I think there's a difference in intimacy, right? I think there's a distinction between love and intimacy, right? But also that intimacy is part of the problem. I think you can imagine being in an intimate relationship. I don't mean like sexually intimate, but just like a a close life of a caretaker who routinely shames you, that shaming comment is going to land differently than the comment of a person who you don't know and don't respect, like Lucius Malfoy, who comes in and, right? Like it's just going to land differently because you don't have the kind of emotional intimacy with that person. So, I think because there is emotional intimacy with Arthur and he's already loving, again, that's not to say that love makes everything easy or good. If there is a loving relationship 
if there are strong ties of trust between people when there when hurt occurs, I think that makes the relationship more resilient, right? And I think, I think, I don't know because we don't have a a long documentary uh, history of life at the borough, but it doesn't sound like Arthur makes a habit of shaming his children this way. I don't think that there's something necessarily wrong with Dumbledore's reaction. I don't think that there's something fatally wrong with Arthur's. I think that the way the chapter resolves suggests that there's nothing wrong with either of those things, right? Right. I think both things are, the, the first is potentially wrong. The second is wrong, but potentially survivable or recoverable. But we don't get enough substance in the chapter of what the next three days of Ginny's life looks like. We just hear she's back to normal and, and roughhousing with the boys a few days later. And that seems insufficient to what she's gone through. I, I think that the moment that Dumbledore really falls off <laughs> for me is when he goes, there was no lasting harm done. I'm like, screw you. <laughs> you don't know that. Like, hopefully yeah. not with Ginny. But like, Harry got bitten by a basilisk and like they is constantly learning that he's under attack. Ron spent an hour panicked that his sister and best friend are dead. Gilderoy Lockhart's memory has been permanently altered. And and Hermione and all, all like he's talking about it in terms of the petrified kids. They lost months of their lives. And so to be like no lasting harm was done, I just find painfully dismissive. So I think that's, of course, that's absolutely true. This is a moment in which I think Dumbledore is trying to take care of Ginny. I think Ginny knows that she opened the Chamber of Secrets. I think she knows that these awful things are happening. And I think in that moment, what he's saying is, I mean, this is another one of those hot chocolate kind of moments where he's trying to say, yeah. like, you know, not- Hermione's not here to to hear that Dumbledore thinks that there was no lasting harm. There may, very may, may well have been lasting harm for the people who were petrified. I think what he's saying to Ginny is, it's okay. Remember the first thing she says when she wakes up is, I'm going to get expelled. Right? Like, she's, she's still in this panic mode where she is blaming herself again, which is why Arthur's comment is the wrong comment. She's still in this place where she's blaming herself. And to me, I read this as, again, probably inelegantly and insufficiently and potentially harmfully to other people in the room. I see this comment as him trying to say to Ginny, it's okay. What you did is is not your fault and and you're not going to be blamed for it and you should not blame yourself for it. I see that as a spirit of it, even if it was delivered yeah. inelegantly. Yeah, he's saying everyone will heal. There was no... Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I struggle with in the book series is exactly what your story brings up, what we're talking about in this chapter, which is the power of love, right? And what I believe personally and what I can like kind of embrace in the books is the idea that love is what gives us the power to find new life in the wake of harm. But... Love doesn't undo the past or erase harm, right? And I think you're right. I think this chapter is another one of those places where that gets blurry, where it doesn't say clearly enough, okay, love is the way we're going to move on from this and survive this and maybe even learn to thrive with one another again. But with how quickly Ginny is back to normal and this line from Dumbledore about no lasting harm, 
it also makes it sound like, oh, because of love, now we can pretend none of this ever happened. And right. I think you're right. You can't pretend none of it ever happened. It's not loving to pretend none of it ever happened. Yeah. I'm wondering, Vanessa, if there's an example of the love plus later in this chapter, right? Because... Yes, there is. I think... Great. Well, why don't you tell me what the example is? Because I think no, we might I have the same idea. many. I find Harry to be wonderful in this chapter, but I really want to hear about your moment. Well, my moment has to do with Harry and that like his yeah. ex- incredible resourcefulness. At the conclusion of this book, when Dobby enters with Lucius, and I think Harry, despite all Dobby's well-intended but harmful love towards Harry, Harry understands that Dobby has been trying to do the right thing the whole time and also feels some love for Dobby. But it's that feeling is not what solves the situation, right? It takes Harry, like, thinking hard. The text says that he thinks hard after Lucius has this kind of outburst at them and storms out. He thinks hard for a second, and he hears Dobby squealing down the hallway. And in that moment of resourcefulness, remembers this random thing that Dobby said earlier in the book about giving a piece of clothing, right? And then springs to action, takes off a dirty sock and does the thing that that sets Dobby free. Freeing the captive is like a classic Christian like example of what love looks like, right? And like mm-hmm. so I love this moment, but it is a love plus, right? Like there's not yeah. it's it's concern for justice and also like using your brain. We think about love as like a heart thing. But Harry has to think hard and remember and pay attention to com- a random conversation he had with Dobby a long time ago and be resourceful and take a risk. And all that stuff is what makes love actually bear out as a positive impact for the person who is beloved. Uh, I know. It's so good. He also had to be just like a loving person earlier in the book, even before he knew Dobby, by like listening so actively. The moment that I just love, love, love is Dumbledore is like staring at Lucius Malfoy and is like, and then the text immediately switches to Harry's perspective and it says, and Harry was looking at Dobby. I love that. Yes, I love that. It was just so good, right? Like Dumbledore, Harry's not looking at the person with the power in the room. He's looking Mm. at the vulnerable person in the room and figures everything out because of it, right? Like there's some, like Dobby has this key piece of information. Uh, I just think Harry is such a star. (laughs) Yeah, I want, like, I think I've mentioned this definition of love in the past on this on this podcast, but you know, one definition of love that that I like is just like it's paying attention, right? Just really paying attention, like to to what someone is going through, and being there for them, and like that's that that struck me too. Like that when they walk in, you know, Lucius is trying to suck all the energy out of the room and trying to totally. like push everybody around, but Harry just doesn't have any doesn't have any time for him. He just immediately looks at Dobby and you can see like him just attending to Dobby and seeing what Dobby is going through and suffering. And that causes him to like use his brain and remember it's it's great. It's a great moment. And it is, I think it's, it's like this prime and perfect example of the love plus you're, you're yeah. talking about. I mean, Dumbledore, D- Dumbledore does the exact right thing, right? Which is say, okay, now that this is all resolved, I can get Hagrid out of prison. And that is like the first thing that Dumbledore does. And I love that. Even if his list is then weird, he's like, we have to get pre- <laughs> Hagrid out of prison. Check. We got to find a new defense against the dark arts teacher by putting an ad in the newspaper. This is urgent because it'll it's four months from now. Check. What? And I need to brush my teeth. Like, I was like, I'm not sure that this is how I would present this information. But I do love that his first instinct is like, we got to get Hagrid out of prison. Good on you, yep. Dumbledore. But 
Harry, right, all he is is Hermione's going to be better, right? Like, that's all he cares about in that moment, right? He He's so worried about Ginny and, like, people blaming Ginny. And then he's worried about Dobby. And then he's excited about Hermione. Like, this kid just went through this, like, horrible thing. And he just isn't thinking about himself at all. I mean, he has this little conversation with Dumbledore. But, like, I just think that he's, like... A number one in this chapter. Uh, so I have a hot take. All the all the conversation we're having right now, I have a hot take. I think I think book two is when Harry becomes the hero of these books, right? He is in mm. book one, but I feel like the final confrontation with with Quirrell slash Voldemort in book one. I mean, Harry shows some courage, right? Sure. Of course, and I don't want I don't want to discount his courage, um, but it feels like there's kind of like the lingering protection of his mother's love, which is allows him to survive that. Right. Like in this moment, it's the same courage at the end of this book. It's the same courage, but it's a particular habit of kind of Harry's or a particular kind of attention or devotion of Harry's to Ginny. It's him recognizing Tom Riddle for who he is and, and reacting to, to Tom. It's showing his loyalty to Dumbledore or whatever, which is what calls Fox or Fox to, to them and then in this final chapter it's him like attending to dobby like it's the kind of magical form of love that protected harry in the first book and allowed him to survive the encounter with quirrell slash voldemort in this book the love here is not just a lingering protection it's harry taking action on behalf of the most vulnerable and that's what becomes curative and and protective and rescuing and that yeah i'd like somehow the 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 agency transfers in a really important way in this book and harry's revealed as this as this heroic figure who is a hero by virtue of the fact that as you say vanessa he's really selfless and really pays attention to the most vulnerable in in each of these rooms that he enters in this in these last two chapters yeah and dumbledore frames that for him and for us Mm. right right it's your choices that make you who you are that famous line yep i i love this theory that you have matt and i I think that you're absolutely right in that the clues are in the text that Dumbledore yeah. is saying to us, it's no longer just that you're the chosen one. You are making wonderful choices. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I think, boy, that's a great textual call out, right? He's like this idea of choices versus the chosen one, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's not just that your mother loved you that makes you the chosen one. It's actually you You have the agency to be the one who who can do these things. There's one moment in this chapter which frankly kind of creeps me out. <laughs> and where, where, like, not only do we not have a love plus, we have like a love minus. Like, we're not yeah. we're not doing love anymore. Like, there's a real. I think there's a hint or evidence of a real like moral failure going on among among wizarding folk in mm-hmm. in in this world. Which is, you know, after they return and uh, Harry and Ron explain to Dumbledore that that a memory charm backfired and. Lockhart no longer has his memory. Dumbledore has this line where he says, impaled upon your own sword, Gilderoy. And there's an exclamation point at the end of that sentence, which I think is actually, it's fairly subtle. Maybe I'm overreading, but I think it's actually a really important punctuation distinction. It's not a question mark. It's not like, what happened to you, Gilderoy? It's like, oh, this happened to you, Gilderoy, exclamation point, which seems to me to imply that everyone kind of knew that Gilderoy was using these memory charms on people and stealing their stories which is like terrible and horrifying. Like they, they knew that this was happening and everyone just kind of let it happen. It really reminded me of situations of like 
well-known abuse within, especially like the entertainment industry, but across industries where people just kind of kept silent about it and didn't say much. People in power kept silent about it and didn't say much, even though they kind of knew it was happening. And it just made me feel gross, frankly. Yeah, I find this all very disturbing. I will say that I have to confess that I find Lockhart very charming in this chapter when he hears, I was a professor, must have been really bad at it, was I? Like, I'm like, aw, memory charmed you is adorable, sir. But yeah, the fact that Dumbledore clearly, clearly knew this about him and was like, it's fine. We need a defense against the dark arts teacher. Come here. He even says to Harry, like, I'm just going to do the same thing again. I'm going to put an ad in the paper. Boy, we sure seem to go through these teachers. I'm like, there's a problem here, sir. This is a pattern. Stop. And I think you're absolutely right to bring this to a Me Too thing. I hadn't thought about it. But this like, oh, there's a pattern here. Sometimes we'll have good people and sometimes we'll be slightly, you know, violent. But that's just the cost of doing business. It's such a weird thing to have gotten used to as a society. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is Me Undies. I love them so much, and Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some Me Undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of Me Undies lounge pants, and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of Me Undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. 
MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. Matt, there is a very, like, sad, loving moment in this chapter to me, which is... As soon as Hermione sees Harry, right, like she runs to him and she goes, you solved it. And she's so happy. And I just want to sit there and be like, no, you solved it. He only solved it by like pulling the piece of paper out of your hand. And I think that this is a form of love that I think a lot of young women will recognize within themselves. Obviously not only young women, but this like when you want someone who you admire to like, like you, you hand over a little bit of your power to them. Mm-hmm. And I, I just feel like this is something that is like instinctive in people who feel like they have less power than the other person, right? We like flatter, even if it's slightly false flattery. And this is just like, it's so sweet that this is what Hermione is saying. I think part of what she's saying, right, is like, you're so brave and you like really did the thing. But the you solved it makes this line a little bittersweet to me. I think you're right. I mean, it, I, first of all, totally agree. And everything I'm going to say now is is not to judge Hermione for saying it. It's actually kind of to judge maybe Rowling for word choice here. Because I actually think that I, the Hermione I know, I think, says mm-hmm. something different. I don't think she says yeah. you solved it. I think she says something more like you understood. Yes. You understood my you note. Found the note in my hand. Right. And you understood, like, you dummies figured out what I was trying to, like, were under, able to understand what I had figured out. Like, I feel like throughout this book, throughout the first book, Hermione has that confidence and is more than willing to say to Harry and Ron, try to keep up, right? Like, here's here's what it is. Try to keep up with it. I feel like it shows why close reading, like the kind we do on this on this podcast and in our communities is important because I think even like subtle word choices can really affect characterization and what we think is going on. I think that the difference between Hermione coming out and saying, you understood me or you understood the note and you solved it is that transfer of agency and power, which is something that I don't see elsewhere in Hermione so often. And I, and I, and I don't want to see in this moment. Right. So I think it's a really interesting moment. So thanks for highlighting it. No problem, man. I'm here for you. Vanessa, now is time for our spiritual practice, and I am going to lead us in the practice of pardes. I'm very excited to lead my first pardes practice. I believe in you so much. So the first step of pardes is I need to choose a sentence at random from the chapter. I have flipped to Dobby's reward in my well-worn copy of Chamber of Secrets. His own very rare gift, parcel tongue, resourcefulness, determination. A certain disregard for rules. So the first step of pardes is pshat, which means straight, literally. And that's sort of like the literal meaning. What's the intended meaning of this line? So Vanessa, what's the intended meaning of this line? This is Dumbledore talking to Harry, right? And saying, it's true that you have a lot of similarities to Slytherin and would have fit in that house. You 
can speak partial tongue. You are a rule breaker. And this big butt is coming. But Dumbledore is making the case that Harry is right. He would have been great in Slytherin. Yeah, that's right. And one thing I'm really noticing in this line is just like how these gifts are what free Dobby from Lucius in just a couple minutes, right? Not the parcel tongue, but like the resourcefulness and the determination, which Dumbledore lists as particularly Slytherin characteristics. Right, because they're like cunning. That's right. That's what he has in that moment, which allows him to to free Dobby, which is, that's really cool, right? Like these are the things I, I never realized before, like how how explicitly that was characterized in an almost immediately subsequent plot point. Me neither. And this reading of this chapter was the first time where I was like, oh, I can't imagine wanting to be in Slytherin, right? Like, I can totally imagine wanting to, like, learn how to be strategic to for yeah. good ends, right? Like, yeah. and I think that you pointing out that Harry is essentially living into Slytherin identity by freeing Dobby, is another example of that. Which is also like, I mean, again, we we don't want to be too easy on Dumbledore, but it's almost like Dumbledore is kind of giving Harry permission to like live into those qualities, right? He's saying like, yeah, these are certain things. It's okay. You're still a Gryffindor, right? Yeah. But use your resourcefulness and use your determination because they're your gifts. They're not Slytherin's gifts. They're your gifts. And then two beats later, Harry uses those gifts and saves Dobby. It's it's cool. It is cool. And it speaks to the power of good mentor, right? Right. Like, this is a good mentor moment with Dumbledore where he's like, you have these qualities. And Harry's like, right, I have these qualities. Let me use them right now. I'm going to think really hard about how to use them. That's right. For good, as you said, right? You can see how the power of Slytherin is actually a necessary, these are necessary skills that movements for justice need, right? And so, yeah, that's great. Okay, our next step in Pardes is Remez, which literally translates as hint. So we're what the way we do it is we think about how this word hints at other uses of the word. We track the word throughout the series. So let's choose a word, Vanessa, and you tell me where you see it elsewhere in the series. Can you read me the sentence one more time, please? His own very rare gift, parcel tongue, resourcefulness, determination, a certain disregard for rules. Matt, I think we should do gift. Great. I love it. Let's let's track gift throughout the series. I mean, what I think of immediately are the three mysterious gifts that are given in book seven, right? To oh. Harry, Ron, and Hermione. So the Deluminator, the Tales of Beetle the Bard, and the Snitch, the first snitch that Harry ever ever caught, right? So that's those are three very important gifts, but there are other gifts throughout the series. Molly Weasley's sweaters, annual sweaters. Absolutely. Hedwig. Oh, Hedwig is such a good gift. In this book, Harry gives Dobby the gift of that sock and continues to give Dobby the gift of clothing again oh and again. Oh my gosh, yes. Because Dobby loves clothes. That's right. There's the gift of the different brooms that Harry gets. He gets the mm. broom in book one from Dumbledore McGonagall and then in three from Sirius, which leads mm-hmm. to the whole Hermione-Harry-Ron fight. That's right. There are a lot of gifts. Mm. The invisibility cloak is a gift from Dumbledore Kind of. I mean, it's inherited, so it kind of belongs to Harry, but it's also kind of a gift, I feel like. The Dursleys always give Harry really pathetic gifts, like a coin or a tissue. Well, at his 17th birthday, doesn't he get a timepiece also? Isn't that like a traditional gift? A family heirloom timepiece from Molly? Yeah, Molly gives him her brother who passed away in the war his um, watch, which is just like such a beautiful moment. 
of yeah. like really making Harry family. Hermione buys herself a gift. She's like, do you know what I want? A cat. And she just yep. buys herself Crookshanks. I love it when people buy themselves gifts. Step three of Pardes is Drosh, which literally means interpretation. And the way we perform this step is we think about how we would preach on this line, what, what we would say in a sermon. His own very rare gift, parcel tongue, resourcefulness, determination, a certain disregard for rules. I think I would preach on seeing things that we can't really change about ourselves as gifts, right? It's like if you're stubborn and you have really tried to be less stubborn, but there's just something in your nature that makes you that, really trying to cultivate ways in which you can use that stubbornness as a gift. Because I think that we beat ourselves up unnecessarily about things. And I... I deeply believe in the human capacity for change, but I also think that it's okay to just acknowledge certain truths about ourselves and try to use them well. And so, Mm -hmm. and the world needs all of our gifts, right? Like we need a really diverse set of gifts in the world. So I think that is what I would preach on. What about you, Matt? I think I would preach on that final clause, which is a certain disregard for rules. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, my, I think this is, dispositional, right? I think my own kind of field of research has to do with like ethics and morals, right? And so like when rules apply, but also the deeper question of like, what are the rules about breaking rules, mm-hmm. like, right? Like when, when ought you to break rules and, and, and especially how that idea of breaking rules links to these previously mentioned gifts of resourcefulness and determination. Because I think that our resourcefulness and our determination are a couple of the things that help guide us when we have to discern which rules are worth breaking and how we break them, right? And so I think I would try to do something. I can't write the sermon now, right? But I think I would try to do something relating these three attributes together and trying to give us some clarity about how we think through when and how to break rules that need breaking. Our final step in Pardes is my favorite. I know. Our final step is sowed which means secret. Vanessa, tell me the secret. His own very rare gift, parcel tongue, resourcefulness, determination, a certain disregard for rules. I mean, just that all of these gifts are gifts that were given accidentally, right? Harry can speak parcel tongue because Voldemort attacked him. He's probably so determined in part because of how he was raised with the Dursleys. And yet these are exactly the gifts that he's going to need to get through these situations, right? The I'm not like pro-trauma, but sometimes tra- trauma can create radical gifts within us, right? Mm. It can create more empathy. It can create more sure-footedness. It can you know, allow you to speak parcel tongue and therefore open the chamber of secrets. Hmm. That's what the secret was to me. What about you, Matt? It's a secret, so I can't tell you what it is. But it has something to do with Harry receiving permission from Dumbledore to use these gifts. Like the the degree to which the gifts we have are catalyzed by others or something. Yeah. Does that make sense? Totally. I don't know. And again, I, I'm mindful of your your really great note about Hermione and not wanting to 
to hand over power to others or to say that our gifts and powers depend upon the permission of others, because I don't think they ought to or should. But there is something about how we do have some kind of power to open up and catalyze and spur on the gifts of others. And that's actually one of the most important powers that we have is to empower others, right? So uh, I guess that's the thing I already believe as well. So maybe it's not a sewed, <laughs> but that, that's that, that's where I'm arriving. Yeah, I. what that makes me think about is what is it that I want to compliment in others? Because what do I want to sort of fan hmm. the flames of in them, right? Yeah. Matt, excellent job. Thanks, Vanessa. I had a great teacher. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This week's voicemail is from Leah. Hi, Vanessa, Matt, and the Sacred Text team. I just finished listening to your episode on forgiveness in Mudbloods and Murmurs. In this episode, you discuss the potential that Professor McGonagall purposely made Harry spend his detention with Lockhart because she knew Harry would hate the way Lockhart treated him. This time reading through the text, I was struck by the way adults in Harry's life use what is often referred to as Harry's fame against him. Most characters in the book glorify Harry's survival of Voldemort, but nobody really seems to remember that this fame only happened because his parents were murdered, which brought on a whole onslaught of trauma from their death to the Dursleys' abuse and neglect. And there's also this kind of ongoing stress and trauma Harry faces because he does not yet know why Voldemort wants to kill him. This is a question Harry has the courage to ask at the end of book one, but he won't receive an answer to until the end of book five. We know Harry does not really enjoy the fame he has received, 
but I never realized just how re-traumatizing this idolization must be for him, especially in the times it's used against him by the adults in his life. Snape constantly uses Harry's fame to taunt him, and that doesn't really surprise me. Lockhart seems utterly ignorant to Harry's circumstances, and I feel as if he could benefit from some trauma-informed teacher training. But in this chapter, it was Professor McGonagall who really disappointed me. She knows Harry and she knows his trauma, and must know how re-traumatizing it must have been each time Lockhart gives him advice on how to be famous. Yet she allows him to serve detention with Lockhart, showing Harry that she doesn't really care to remember how this might affect him. So a blessing for Harry. Throughout the books, his struggle with fame and being the chosen one poster boy is something he doesn't really voice often. But whenever he does it, it feels like the pot has boiled over. I want to bless him for carrying this incredibly heavy weight that perhaps he feels like he can't share with anyone else. And I want to bless him for forgiving McGonagall in his own way. His respect for her doesn't really wane after this lapse in judgment, and I think it takes an incredibly loving person to be able to do that. Thank you guys so much for your podcast. It really makes my day brighter. Thank you, Leah, for that really wise and and, uh, insightful voice memo. I mean, as you're speaking, first of all, I think everything you say is right about how many of the adults, all the adults around Harry, diminish sort of the like lasting impact of 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 his early childhood pain and the loss of his parents um and how even when they think about the the things that he supposedly enjoys now like fame how those are just kind of reminders of of everything he's lost and as i was listening to you speak Lee, i it makes me think that there is this kind of tension in the series because there are a couple times you know when harry throughout the series just kind of wishes he was a quote-unquote normal wizarding family right that his parents were still alive you know when, that he had just grown up with a quiet life in godric's hollow with a bunch of wizarding families and was not special or famous and i think everything you're saying in your voice memo reminds me of that and just the series begins with how the dursleys have this kind of urge to be normal they do not want to be understood as abnormal in any way and that's the problem with the dursleys but there's also the sense in which Harry wishes he were not so exceptional because his exceptionality is due to this trauma and this violence, which he wishes he could erase. And that he wishes just he wishes he had led a quote unquote more normal life. Yeah, it just got me thinking about how that tension is more complicated in these novels than we see in the first chapter of book one. And it's also just a really caring and compassionate voice memo. And you're reading these characters, Leah. So thank you. Yes, thank you, Leah. It is now time for us to remember those in our community who have been loved and lost. Dick Bacon, 86, a generous grandfather, father, and farmer. Faith Jensen, 22, an actress, angel, and friend. Sheila Erickson, 80, a grandmother, who never forgot a birthday. Angela Rose Smith, 88, a grandmother of 13. Pickles, 11, a dog, but my child. And Auntie I, 69, the most loving aunt. May light perpetual shine upon them.
So Matt, it's now time for us to offer blessings for characters. I want to bless Dobby for a very particular moment, which is just that right after he's free, he disapparates. And I suddenly panicked. I was like, where is he going? Like, he, he can't really go back to Malfoy Manor. And so I was just suddenly very concerned about him. And I know he's going to end up in Hogwarts by the fall. But I think that after good news, right, like graduations or going into remission or right, various pieces of good news, we expect people to be really happy when really those are big transitions to a different life. And so I just want to bless Dobby for this is very exciting. This is a very big transition that he's going through. So I want to bless everyone who's going through some sort of big change right now. What about you, Matt? Thanks, Vanessa. I would like to bless the Weasleys, all, all of them, just because that moment at the beginning of the chapter when they're all huddled around in that terrifying matrix of horror and grief and panic and worry. I mean, that is just like the nightmare of so many parents. And too many parents live through it, actually live through it, right? Uh, and I'm sure some of our listeners have lived through it as well. And so just that moment made me just want to bless the Weasleys for having had to live through it, even if the outcome was good, and especially to bless all those who who have lived through this kind of terrifying moment and not seen the the resolution on the other side that they hoped for. Well, Matt, next week we are going to be wrapping up book two. Just a few reminders before we give our thanks. We have a Winnie the Pooh virtual pilgrimage that's on sale now at readingandwalkingwith.com. We also have a Pride and Prejudice pilgrimage in June with Margaret H. Willison, which you can also learn about at readingandwalkingwith.com. And our read-through class is starting again in just a few weeks. It will be led by the wonderful Maeve Hammond. And so if you want to start reading these books as sacred in community, find out more by going to notsorryworks.com and clicking on classes. This was a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our engineer is Erica Wong. And our music is by Ivan Paisawa, Nick Bull. We are distributed by Acast. Thank you to Leah this week for their voice memo. To Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Terkyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of you who sent in the names of your loved ones. I think you should have called me, because I think I would have said, who cares about the breasts? There's, there's like <laughs> a long period of agonizing death. Mm-hmm. Which if that's something mm-hmm. that your, the kids are ready for, fine. But that's the decision you need to make. Not mm-hmm. who cares about the boobs, <laughs> right? <laughs>